0: i like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who first said the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes. Some of the nominees in the new administration are learning that the hard way. As we get a little taste of spring today, we're reminded that this is the time of year when those two subjects come to the forefront, tax time and Easter. But unfortunately, more people, I think, are focused on April 15th than they are on April 12th. More people are asking, what do the new tax laws mean to me? Than are asking, "What does Easter mean to me? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to me?" Death is a certainty. I went on the internet and looked looked up the word death. Came up with a uh, YouTube. Expression of George Carlin talking about death. It was done about a year and a half ago. He said, At this point in my life, he said, I go through my address book and I mark out my friends who die. He says, It makes me feel kind of superior. And then he said, uh, I don't go right home from the funeral and mark them out. I, I give them six weeks, kind of for nothing. Just leave them there for six weeks, then I scratch them out. He said, it's interesting what people say when somebody dies. Come up to somebody and say, did you hear that Phil Davis died? And they will inevitably say, well, I just saw him yesterday. And he said, yeah, well, it didn't help. But, you know, as I listened to that, and I only listened to about that much, it was kind of sad to me because George Carlin has since been scratched out of the address books of his friends. Because death is inevitable. Death is a certainty. The question is, are you ready for it? Some people think they are. I find people, some people take great encouragement in finding out that some guy's heart stopped on an operating table. And when they resuscitated him, he came back and said, well, you know what? I saw a bright light and felt real peaceful. And they say, oh, good. I guess that's what will happen to me. Or some people... Embrace incarnation and say, well, I know I'm going to come back as something. If not a human being, then an animal, and I'll get a do-over. Or some people just believe in extinction, that death is the end. No tomorrow, no accountability, no consequences, no nothing. But you know, most people face the most chilling certainty in life without a clue you know I ask people what's going to happen when you die and they kind of go well I hope I think maybe maybe not they remind me of Charlie Brown he was having a discussion with Lucy and Lucy was explaining to him that life is like a cruise ship you know you, you uh, some people set their deck chair to see where they have been some people set their deck chair to see where they're going some people set their deck chair so they can see where they are in the present. Charlie Brown thinks about it a second, and he says, I can't even get mine unfolded. Others are like Woody Allen, the optimistic pessimist. He said, I do not believe in an afterlife, but I am bringing a change of underwear. You know, it's really sad when something is as sure and final as death, and yet so many people are confused about it. But the joy is that for the Christian, death is not confusing because the clear answer lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He conquered death when he came out of that Jewish tomb. It is empty. I'm going to Israel in May. I will come back and clarify for you that there is no gravestone over there that says, here lies Jesus. He is alive. And that is the heart of the gospel. That is what we believe in order to be saved. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then what is the benefit for you and me? Well, Christ's resurrection assures your resurrection. Because he rose, we will rise too. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live Also, now that's where the Corinthians, at least some of the Corinthians, had a problem. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but they weren't so sure about their own resurrection. And if you look in chapter 15, we'll see that in verse 12. It says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? They were saying, We believe Jesus rose but we don't believe we're going to rise. And so Paul writes this chapter 15, this long chapter, to address this subject of first Christ's resurrection. In fact, in the first 11 verses, he's going to tell them that Christ rose, and that's the heart of the gospel. He's going to give the evidence for that, and then he's going to talk about how that assures our resurrection. And in the course of this, he's going to answer some interesting questions that you may have about resurrection, like when it's going to happen, what's the order of resurrection, what kind of body are you going to have, are you going to look the same, you're going to be able to fly around the universe in your new body, what's it going to be like, and what should be your attitude toward death, given the fact that you know you're going to rise? You say, well, where did they get this idea that there was no resurrection? Well, one place they got it was from the secular society around them. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul preached in Athens, Athens was only a little bit away from Corinth. And he preached in Athens on Mars Hill, and they let him preach until he talked about what? The resurrection. In Acts 17, 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. They listened to Paul talk until he mentioned that Jesus rose from the dead and then they sneered, they mocked him off the stage. And so they were influenced by the secular society around them. They were also influenced by the Jewish background. So you had the, the main two elements in that day were the Jews and the Greeks. They were influenced by the Greeks negatively toward resurrection. They were also influenced by the Jews because the Jews had two major sects within them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The difference in the two was the Pharisees were very legalistic. The Sadducees basically didn't believe anything. In fact, in Acts 23.8, it says, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angels, no spirit. So they were the liberal Jews. They basically came to the scriptures and said, well, We don't believe anything miraculous in there. There's no resurrection. There's no spirit. There's no angels. They don't exist. If we don't see it, we don't believe it. That's how I keep those two apart. The Pharisees are fair, you see. They're legalistic. The Sadducees didn't believe anything, so they are sad, you see. Work with me. So they were influenced by the the secular society around them. They were were influenced by the Jewish community. They were also influenced negatively by the church because there were false teachers in the church. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18 speaks about Hymenaeus and Philetus who had gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they have upset the faith of some. And so Paul writes this 58-verse chapter about the resurrection, not just showing that Jesus rose, but assuring that because he rose, we will rise as well. Now, this morning, I just want to look at the first five verses with you because it really contains the basics of the gospel. Look at verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. You say, well, why did he wait 15 chapters to bring up the gospel? Well, he's not bringing up the gospel. He's reminding them of the gospel that he already preached to them. Paul is saying, let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the gospel, the good news. And before he defines what it is, he's going to remind them of what it does or what it has done in their lives. And I've mentioned four things in your outline. First point, what it does, and the first thing it does is you hear it. Paul says, I preached it to you. Now, you wouldn't have had to hang around Paul very long to know you were going to hear the gospel. I went through scripture this week and found what he says about the gospel. And here's what he says He says, I am set apart for the gospel. I am eager to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may proclaim the gospel. He says, I don't use cleverness of speech so that the cross will not be made void. I don't give the gospel in cleverness. I just give the gospel because it's too important. In Philippians 1.16, he says, I defend the gospel. Why does he have to defend the gospel? Because he says, I preach it in much opposition. 1 Thessalonians 2.2. There are counterfeit contrary gospels, Galatians 1.8. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He calls us to strive together for the faith of the gospel, to not be moved away from the hope of the gospel, to join me in suffering for the gospel, which he calls the glorious gospel, the eternal gospel, and he calls it the unfathomable riches of Christ. You see, Paul knew that people needed to hear the gospel, and that's the first thing. They have to hear it. You know it. Some of your friends don't know it. The first connection is they need to hear it, and you're the one that needs to tell them. So step number one in what the gospel does is first of all, you have to hear it. Secondly, you have to receive it. Look at verse 1 again. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. You have to receive the gospel. It's not enough to give mental assent to the gospel. It's not enough to like it or respect it or approve of it. You have to receive it. Paul told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 that the gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. What does the gospel do? It convicts me by the Holy Spirit and it brings me to my knees. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.15, you were born again through the gospel. It makes you into a new creature, the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, when Jesus comes back, he will deal out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel. Now, how do you obey a message of salvation by faith alone. How do you obey that? You receive it. You embrace it. You take it in. So he says you've got to hear it. You've got to receive it. Thirdly, he says, you stand in it. Look at the end of verse 1. In which you also stand. Did you get that? The gospel is not something you just hold in your hand loosely. It's something you stand in. It's your foundation. It's the thing that holds you up. I don't know about you, but when I know that God loves me and has forgiven me and has made me his child and he is at work in my life and he has eternal plans for me, that is a place that I can stand that is secure. when the headlines are telling you unemployment is surging, and the economy is as bad as it's been since the Great Depression, and the Senate is trying to pump $800 billion into our economy to try to fix it, and there's turmoil in the Middle East, and there's troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, and there are terrorists on every side, and Iran, our real threat, has just apparently sent a satellite into space. And at any moment, we could have nuclear weapons streaming across the United States. How does that make you feel? How do you deal with that? We see, as a Christian, I'm not shaken up by that. That doesn't knock me down. You know why? Because I stand on the secure foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You hear it, you receive it, you stand in it, and then fourthly, you are saved by it. Verse 2, by which also you are saved. You know, a lot of people don't like that word, saved. There are a lot of churches that don't use that word because it's kind of embarrassing, it's offensive to say that you have to be saved. We see, the gospel doesn't improve you. It doesn't patch you up. It doesn't supplement you. It doesn't help you out a little bit. It saves you. Without the gospel, you are hopeless, you are helpless, you are lost, you are doomed. And you have to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. And the gospel saves you past, present, and future. In the past, it saves you from the penalty of sin. In the present, it is saving you from the power of sin. And in the future, it will ultimately save you from the presence of sin. That's the gospel. But then he adds a condition in verse 2. By which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, what's it mean to believe in vain? Well, some people say, well, that means that if you say you believe, but what you have is not really saving faith, then you have believed in vain. If you're not standing on the gospel, you're holding it loosely, or you turn away from the gospel, it's evidence that you really didn't believe in the first place. And that's true. True. Because the evidence of real genuine faith is that I'm going to persevere. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here when he says, unless you believed in vain. Because the answer to what he's talking about is a little further on in the chapter. Look at verse 12 again. He says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. What would make your faith vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? See, Paul says, I preached the gospel to you. You received it. You stand in it. You're saved by it. But if you take Christ's resurrection out of that, your faith is meaningless. It's worthless. It's empty. It's vain. You see what he's saying? Christianity is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is impotent. And so the resurrection of Christ is essential. It's foundational. What does it do to you? You hear it. You receive it. Thirdly, you stand on it and you're saved by it. You say, well, wow, what is it? What is the gospel? Well, he's going to tell us in verses 3 to 5. Notice verse 3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, stop right there. This is what preachers are supposed to do deliver what they receive from the Lord. Very simple. That's why I tell people, I'm a paper boy. Not an editor. You know, I don't don't write the good news. I don't, you know, critique the good news. I am a paper boy. I am delivering the good news to you. I am delivering, Paul says, I'm delivering what I received. I'm not doing anything to it except trying to get it to you without messing it up. And that's the responsibility of a preacher. You say, well, what is it he delivered that he received from the Lord. Four parts to the gospel. Number one, that Christ died for our sins. Look at verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, the first point of the gospel is that Christ died. But notice something it's not just that he died, everybody believes that Jesus died. There's no saving power in the fact that Jesus died. He died, what? For our sins. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. When Jesus died, he delivered me. When Jesus died, he set me free. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is good news because he died there for our sins. And then notice something. He says... It was according to the Scriptures. Now, what's that mean? It was according to God's plan already laid out in the Old Testament Scriptures. Let me show you something. Take your Bible and turn back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written about 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. I want you to notice what it says in Psalm 22. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard that? Those are the very words that Jesus said when he hung on the cross. So this is a psalm written a thousand years before Jesus came with the words that he would say on the cross. So this psalm is talking about Jesus. Look at verse 7. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. What's going to happen? People are going to mock him when he's on the cross. That's what happened to Jesus. In fact, look at verse 8. It gives the very words they would say, saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him. If you look in Matthew 27, 43, you'll find that those who mocked Jesus while he was on the cross said these exact words that were written a thousand years earlier. Look at verse 16. Last phrase. They pierced my hand's and my feet. Wow. They didn't even have crucifixion a thousand years before Jesus, and the psalm writer is writing that they're going to pierce his hands and his feet. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Whoa. Sounds like it belongs in the gospel of Luke, and it's written a thousand years earlier, describing in detail the crucifixion. Of Jesus, even the very words he would say, even the very words that those who mocked him would say, it's according to the scriptures. Turn over a few books to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. For sake of time, I'll just point this out to you. You can read it later. This is written 800 years before Jesus. In verse 5, it says he would be scourged. In verse 5, it says he would be pierced through. In verse 7, it says that while he's going through this, he would not open his mouth. Verse 9 says he would be put in a rich man's grave. And verse 12 says he would be numbered among the transgressors. He would be put to death with criminals. But more particularly, it says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Where, it, where does it say he would die for our sins in the Old Testament? Well, look at Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Point number one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Point number two in what is the gospel. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Point number two is that Christ was buried. Look at verse 4. And that he was buried. Now, why is it important that he was buried? Well, the fact that he was buried is the proof that he died. And Scripture is very careful to point out the certainty of the death of Jesus. Remember when they came around to the criminals to to hasten their death, they broke the legs of the criminals on each side of Jesus, and they came to Jesus, and he was already dead. And so they ran a spear through his side. The centurion who oversaw the crucifixion after watching Jesus die said, truly this man was, past tense, the son of God. He was dead. Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate wouldn't release the body until he had received verification that he was dead. He was taken down from the cross and wrapped in a linen sheet, placed in a tomb cut out of the rock. A stone was placed over the tomb, and it was sealed and guarded by the Romans. Point number one of the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scripture. Point number two, he was buried Point number three, Christ was raised. Verse four, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. On the third day, to the astonishment of the disciples, Jesus rose again. And he wasn't just resuscitated, he was resurrected. He came out of that tomb in a resurrected, glorified body. Jesus had predicted that, and here we read again that the Old Testament scriptures had predicted that he would rise. Where do we see that in the Old Testament scriptures? Psalm 16.10 says, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he used that scripture. Paul used it later in Acts chapter 13, both making the same point. David wasn't talking about David because David got buried and his body decayed. The Scripture was talking about the Messiah, that he would die, but his body would not see decay because he would rise again. Isaiah 53.10 puts it this way, He will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried as the proof of that, that he rose again, and then fourthly, that he appeared That's what we read in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas and the 12 and the 500 and to James and to Paul, and he gives a list of people that he appeared to. He died, the proof was that he was buried. He rose, the proof was that he was seen by eyewitnesses. And next week, we're going to look at this list of eyewitnesses, and we're going to see their eyewitness account of the risen Christ and the impact it had on their lives. But this morning I want you to simply understand that this is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again the 3rd day, and he was seen. I want you what I want you to get is this. These are basic facts. These are not philosophies. These are not theories, these are not ideas, these are not teachings. They are simple, hard-nosed facts that occurred in history and cannot be eliminated, cannot be evaded. And these facts have changed the course of mankind. And they are the permanent foundation of our faith. This is the good news. Our good news is based on the fact that Jesus died for our sins. The fact that he was buried, the fact that he rose again on the third day, and the fact that he was seen by eyewitnesses. So the question I want to ask you this morning in closing is this. Have you received the gospel? Do you stand on the gospel? Have you been saved by the gospel? And if so, then you can look to death with confidence and peace, knowing that just as Jesus rose again, you also will rise again. And if you have not, then I challenge you today, I ask you today, I beg you today, to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. We have the praise team come back. They're going to lead us in a couple songs. Let's stand as we close.